John chapter 14. We'll be studying verses 18 through 24, and I would like for us to read for context of verses 15 to 26. I think it'd be good to pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your love shown to us in Christ, made known by the Spirit. And it's so deep. It's so unfathomable. It's so out of, out of, out of reach. It, it exceeds our minds, grasps, our hearts, affection. And with those limitations, then we now pray that your spirit would make up the difference as we look to learn of this love in this text once more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring them to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. Would you rather? Would you rather? It's a good game, right? Normally, if you've ever played like the board game, would you rather, the alternatives are typically pretty dismal. <laughs> uh, there's a positive version of would you rather. I think it still comes on every day on syndicated television in the United States. It's called The Price is Right. The game ends with the showcase. And there's two showcases. 
And you have to pick the one that you really want, but you don't really know the value. You're guessing it. So I want you to imagine with me a showcase, if you will, of uh, some amazing spiritual options. Now, as I present these, I just I want to give you the freedom to be honest. Because I'm going to present them as, as amazing, but I have this feeling, it's just kind of a feeling, not a fact, but I have this feeling that you're going to listen to them and think that one of them is obviously more valuable than the other. You ready? Here's your showcase. The first one, the physical presence of Jesus on this earth, replete with his touch, his voice, seeing him with your own eyes, hearing him with your own ears, having him come alongside you, walking with you, talking with you, and the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs, Jesus actually being with you, not in heaven, but here on earth now. No show of hands needed, but most of us are thinking, yeah, I like that. That's pretty valuable. All right, that's showcase A. Whatever that's worth, you think it's a lot, I know. Now, um, showcase B. The Holy Spirit. You can't see Him. You can't hear Him. The world doesn't even know if He really exists. In fact... He's so invisible that many people can make him out to be whatever they want him to be. Almost like the force in Star Wars. All kinds of crazy things are done in his name. And it doesn't seem that he defends himself in any way against those accusations, associations. But... Indeed, it's God, the Spirit. He's with us. Now is where things get real because you're just thinking, yeah, this is a slam dunk. I mean, if I, ha- I mean, I know we have the Holy Spirit and we're glad for the Holy Spirit, but like if I had my choice, if it were up to me, option A seems really attractive. It would seem so much better. And that is the dilemma that the disciples found themselves in when hearing the words of this text. They had been living in option A. And Jesus, I say this kindly, but just for the sake of communication, is, is trying to sell them on option B. He's actually telling them, no, trust me, guys, B is better. And they don't get it. We don't get it. Like, of course, 
We need Him here. We need Him now. We need Him with us. But the Spirit, that's great. But it's not as great. Or at least it seems that way. And so, in these dense few verses today, we are going to be challenged to allow ourselves to be sold on the value of the Spirit's present ministry among us. If option B to you doesn't seem at least as valuable as option A, this text is for you. There's probably a thousand and one ways that we could divide it up and try to present it. I told my wife this morning I'm challenged because I feel like I'm trying to describe the beauty of a diamond. And like, how do you make bullet points on that? Like, you could see it from so many different angles. I think the simplest one for us to follow and still grasp the spirit of the text would be two benefits of the Spirit's ministry for those who love Jesus. That's a way you could see what's happening here, a way to unfold it. Two benefits of the Spirit for those who love Jesus. It is, by the way, for those who love Jesus, if you're here today and you do not love him or you don't know that you do, listen in because you might actually find it pretty enticing to want to love him by the time things are over with. In fact, the book of John was written to people just like you, and so this is an inside talk. Like, if you really are wondering, like, whether or not you would want to lean in on and love exclusively the Lord Jesus, by the time you hear how He responds to those who love Him at the end of this by giving His Spirit, you may want to follow Him too in faith. But this is especially for those of us who are here and we do feel the distress of this world and this life, and we think that a real Flesh and blood, Jesus, here and now, not just one who is ruling and reigning in heaven. If we, if we think that would be better, that would fix the problem, this text is actually to encourage us that, no, we actually have something better even than that, even now. I know it's a tough sell, but let's let Jesus make it. Two benefits. They're really easy uh, to see as we make our way through. The first one is insight. The Spirit benefits us with insight. That's in verses 18 to 21. And I'll give you this ahead of time because it, it's, it's a tough text. The second benefit is indwelling. Indwelling. Insight, verses 18 to 21, indwelling. That's the second benefit, verses 21 to 24. And yes, those overlap. 18 to 21, 21 to 24. Let's dive right in. What we have here is Jesus assuring his disciples right before his death departure, and he is really trying to lift their spirits. I mean, they have received a gut punch. I mean, the wind has been knocked out of them because he's saying, hey, I'm about to die, and I'm going to be gone, and I'm going to leave you guys. And so the whole upper room discourse, after Judas leaves, 
It's just assurance after assurance after assurance that his death departure is actually a good thing. So far in this text, we've seen several benefits of Jesus dying and going to heaven. There was a place prepared, right? He's doing that. He's preparing a place for us. There's a way made. Like even if we die before the the time that he comes back to get us, we already know how to get to where he is. Place prepared, way made. Another one, he says, is God's revealed. So many people long to see God and know what he's like. And Jesus says, I've already shown you what God is like. I've given you all the historical evidence that you need if you want to know what it's like for God to be here. That's an encouragement to them. That should have assured them. Like, they've known God. And then what we saw last week was basically help enabled. You know, like, they're going to do greater works they're going to do greater works. They're, they're going to be more effective at pointing people to the saving grace of God in Christ than even Jesus was, that's hard to believe, but they'll be more effective through prayer. God is going to help them do works that represent him. And, if, and when you're thinking about it, when you're not in your despair, and you're just listing out the reasons, you're like, this isn't bad. <laughs> Place prepared, way made, uh, God revealed, help enabled. And then there was one more assurance that he gave last week, and here he expands upon it, and that is obedience enabled. Obedience enabled. He's saying like, hey, I'm going to be gone, but you remember in those verses that I read last week and again this week, but aren't formally part of our text, verses 15 to 17, he says, hey, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. You want to obey. And I realize that that's an intimidating prospect. So here's the deal. You need to know that another helper is going to come, and he's going to enable you to do these things. There's nothing more frustrating. You know what this is like, to try to do a job and to not have the resources you need to get it done. You know what it's like as a kid. You know what it's like as an employee. You know what it's like as a student. Just to be overwhelmed by the prospect of whatever it is that's been entrusted to you. And the text is saying, no, 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 I know I'm, my help directly is going to be gone, but I'm going to send another helper, an authoritative helper, somebody to come along and actually enable this obedience. So it's not going to be impossible. You're, you're going to be able to do this. And who is it that he sends? He says, none other than the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of God who is marked by truth. He's going to show us what's right, and he's going to enable us to do these things. And it's at this point that Jesus will begin to elaborate on how the Spirit of truth will be of help to you in your obedience. How, listen to this, how the Spirit of truth will even be more helpful than Jesus physically being present on the planet. And you know that this whole text is about the spirit of truth because of the ancient rhetorical device of bracketing. You start a topic with a sentence and then you end the topic with the same sentence. Jesus has bracketed everything with this reference to the Holy Spirit as a helper who gives people truth. You see the first reference of it? There in verse 15, or excuse me, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And then we read all the way down to verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, the spirit associated with truth. Do you see the two brackets? 
It's about the Holy Spirit. It's about Him coming to enable. And so specifically, we're learning here two of the, the ways that He will benefit us, two of the ways that He will enable us. And the first one that's mentioned here is insight. The Spirit will help us see Jesus even though He is not here. He will give us a confidence in Christ that we otherwise would not have been able to have. I want you to follow it because there's going to be some historical stuff and then some experiential stuff that both work together, and you need to see them both. Let's follow the argument of the text. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. That's what they're afraid of, being orphaned. I mean, an orphan in that particular culture was devoid of any resources. There was no government assistance for them. To not have a parent alive who could provide was a desperate situation. That's what the disciples are feeling. If you go away, it's going to be the orphan experience for us. And Jesus is saying, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm not leaving you alone. You will have access to real help. He even says in verse 19, yet a little while... And the world will see me no more, but you will see me. That's weird. They're going to, they're going to still see him. Think about this. They're going to still see him even though he's saying, I'm not there. Either Jesus has lost his mind or we're not listening carefully. He says, you will see me, but the world will not see me. Because I live, you also will live. Notice that. He's saying, I've been telling you I'm going to die. I've been telling you I'm going to depart. Now, but this doesn't just mean that death is the departure. It will be death and then life and then departure. I'm coming back to life. I'm telling you that I'm going to come back. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to prove this to you. Here's how I'm going to prove it. I'm going to prove it by dying and coming back again from the dead and actually showing up in a way that you can see me temporarily once more. And historically speaking, this is exactly what happened. Did Jesus not die, remain in the grave three days, and then rise again? And do you know who he appeared to, friends? He appeared to those who were trusting in him. He appeared to to faithful followers, or those who would be his faithful followers. He showed up to those two guys on the road to Emmaus who didn't know him yet, but then they eventually believed in him. But Jesus didn't do a global tour after the resurrection. His ministry to the multitudes was over, and he was saying, from now on, I'm focusing on those who trust me, for those who believe, and I will show up in a way that they'll be able to see me. And he does that. And in that, they're going to know that what he's saying is true. Like, they really can have life after death. Because I live, you will also live. He says in verse 20, in that day you will know. In this, in this season, post-resurrection, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Notice this, friends. They now after the death of Jesus, will become aware of a relationship with God that they in no way thought that they could have. Notice the intimacy of this. Sorry for all the prepositions, but they're in there. That I am in my Father, and that you are in me, and I am in you. There's no closer relationship than to be in 
someone or something, like to be on the inside. We know what it's like when somebody says, I feel like you're pushing me away. Or somebody says, I feel like I'm on the outside of things. What he's saying here is there's a real sense in which like this is internal. It's not just with, that preposition means, you know, beside, we're talking in. He's somehow in us. So the Father, I mean, the Son is in the Father. We are now in Jesus. Jesus is in us. You don't get any closer than that. And what is it that made this known to them? After the resurrection of Jesus, the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost finally convinced them that they could have this close relationship with God that they otherwise thought impossible. You remember in the Old Testament how they would uh, enter into the presence of God? They didn't. <laughs> they didn't enter into the presence of God. Only the, whole, only the priest would enter into the presence of God. They were always beside the presence of God. They were always outside of the presence of God. But now he's saying, you will be in me, and I will be in you. It doesn't get any closer. It doesn't get any more intimate than this. After my resurrection and at the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, you will finally know, you have insight into this close relationship that you otherwise did not know that you had. Did you know that even the disciples at this point, with Jesus standing there right in front of them, were by no means thinking, oh, we're in him and he's in us. They were thinking he's with us. They were not thinking he is actually in us. He is living inside of us. He has taken up residence in our hearts. That was something that they could not know until the Spirit would come and convince them of it. And the point is, it's better. You've got a benefit. You've got help because God has sent his Spirit to give you insight into the kind of relationship that you have with God. You would not have known it otherwise. You would not have known it. It's impossible unless the Spirit has come and taken up residence in you and convinced you of this. And it's a historical fact. He says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And he's given them, like, the historical proof of this is the resurrection, and I know this seems hard to believe, but let's just base it on the facts that uh, truly he does indeed live within us because he lived beyond death. You know that old uh, song? Uh, I don't know how many of you um, grew up singing what I thought were like the old hymns of the faith. I'm not kidding. Like I, I used to, what I thought were the old hymns of the faith, it blew my mind uh, probably 10 years ago to learn that they're not that old. Like the songs that I grew up singing in church were actually written between 1900 and 1950. <laughs> And friends, the church has been around for a long time. One of those songs, it may have even been a Bill Gaither song. Don't worry, I'm not going to have you guess. That didn't go well last time. But he lives. You remember singing that song around Easter? He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. Um, like, I... I, uh, I wish I, like, I could recall all the lyrics, but I do remember, like, the <laughs> Kelly can give us the lyrics, uh, but I do remember, like, the, the, like, the big punchline, you know, of the song, like, serve a living, a living Savior, He's in the world today, 
Uh, I know that he is near me, whatever men may say. I see his heart of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. And then you say, he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. And then here's the punchline. You ask me how I know he lives, answer? Yeah. Isn't that great? It gives you your warm fuzzies. You know what the world hears when you say that? Convenient. Okay, you've got this invisible helper. I'm glad to know that he lives within your heart. It sounds very pie in the sky. It sounds very esoteric. It sounds very unverifiable. Isn't it cool then that Jesus would say, hey, here's how you know that I will live within you, and you're going to know it for sure when I physically overcome death itself. Historically verifiable fact. And if I could live with you again after death, I can live with you and in you forever, even when I'm in heaven. He takes it, follow the text, he takes it from the historical to the experiential. Notice the transition from the historical in verse 20 to verse 21. He repeats the same thing he's been repeating. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, those who have an affection for me and allegiance to me, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, notice this, will be loved by my Father, a special love from the Father, And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus, through the Spirit, will convince us that he is indeed in us, that he loves us in a special way, that the relationship is real. You say, how was one ever convinced of that relationship? Jesus gives that kind of assurance, friends, to those who love him and obey him, to those who have an affection for him and an allegiance to him. The Christian life is still enjoyed by faith, but it's not a faith founded upon a lack of facts. It's a faith founded upon the fact of the resurrection. Like you're believing in what Christ has accomplished. He, he died for your sin. He rose again. There were many witnesses that saw this. And on behalf of that, since he could do that supernatural feat, he can also then still be alive and well and present in our hearts through the Spirit. Friends, I, I don't know like, how we think uh, or, or like, understand history and, and how it works But I know people are always like clamoring because they want to just see something like with their very own eyes. But what's so fascinating to me is that we accept so much else by faith. I'm sorry, I sound angry. I'm not angry. I'm I'm a tad frustrated though because, like, let's think of the moon landing. Like, my dad saw that. They were on a RV trip, and some dude brought out like the old TV, and like he remembers watching this thing. The moon is above, and he's watching it. 
And like you're seeing this like live syndicated broadcast. And I know that there's about a thousand people out there who say that didn't really happen and it was staged in a studio and all that kind of thing. But like the rest of us were like, seems, seems legit to me. Even though we weren't there. I wasn't on the moon when that happened. I believe it as a historical fact. I think of medical trials. Think of the medicines, folks, that you people put in your bodies. And that I do as well. I'm just like, you guys take medicine. I don't. (laughs) Were you there for the trials and testing? You chose to trust somebody somewhere. Some people give more credibility to stinking Yelp reviews than the historical evidence of scriptures. Like the sanitation rating of a restaurant. Like, have you checked out the kitchen? Did you check the expiration date on the food? Even if you did check the expiration date, how do you know that it was actually processed at the time that they said it did? (laughs) William Shakespeare has more historical credibility in some people's minds than Jesus. Like, on what basis? Because you read an article somewhere? We have multiple eyewitness accounts of Jesus conquering death. People who, by the way, had zero, zero motivation to say that a Jewish rabbi came back from the dead. To actually openly acknowledge that he was crucified, which would have been a shame. These people did not believe in this kind of activity, and yet they were willing to die for it. The point is, friends, yes, it is something experiential. It's in your heart, but it's based on the historical. Jesus said, hey, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to live inside you, and he's going to convince you that I am he. He's going to convince you that I am with you. I'm going to show myself to you. Say, prove it. Say, watch me rise from the dead. And that's what he did. We have insight. And it's verified in our hearts. We're convinced of this. But I want to make something clear because some of you may lack this assurance. I'd be remiss if I did not point out to you what is mentioned four different times in this text that this type of assurance is an outcome of affection and obedience. Nothing will undermine your faith more than to have another ultimate other than Jesus or to disobey him in the way that you live. All of a sudden it becomes convenient to morally justify or to morally critique the existence of the Lord Jesus when he is pushing in on you against the sin that you really, really like. Jesus says, if you love me and you keep my commandments, I will show my love to you in this special way and make myself known. It starts there. And I understand historical, theological, we're like, well, who loves who first? Well, Jesus has already made it clear back in John chapter 6, there's no loving God without God first loving you. But let's not try to put together the whole Bible in the same sermon. Let's just focus on this. 
You want that kind of assurance that he lives? Trust, believe. (laughs) Express that affection toward him, that allegiance to him. And he says, you will know. I will show myself to you. And believers have been certain for millennia now. Assurance is an outcome of obedience. Confidence comes from commitment. Believe, obey, enjoy. So there's a benefit. There's insight. There's insight. We can see that Jesus is with us. We know that he is with us. The Spirit convinces us of that. It is not just some pipe dream. It is something that is actually rooted and verified in history So the first benefit is insight. There's a second benefit, and that's indwelling. That's indwelling. If you're disappointed, if you're disappointed with Jesus' plan to only show himself to some people and not to others, you're not alone. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other guy, there's another guy who's a disciple named Judas, he's thinking the same way you are. I like these interjections of questions. Because, frankly, I have lots of them. And it's just good to know, like, oh, good, thank you. I'm glad somebody finally asked the obvious question. This is, this is what he asks. Uh, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? It's like, how's this going to work? How are you going to show yourself to some people and not to others? That's a decent translation of what's there. Literally, the word how should be why. Why is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? For Judas, this doesn't make sense. Like, wouldn't you just go ahead and like visibly show yourself to everybody at the same time? Like, wouldn't that be better? And uh, and Jesus hears that because, like, truly, in the in the Jewish mind, the appearing of God was supposed to be like the ultimate. I told you so. Like, they've been claiming for thousands of years that they serve Yahweh, and Yahweh's going to come and fix it all, and He's going to show up in this bright, brilliant, beautiful way. And that's what their whole eschatology had been teaching them. And yet, in this very moment, Jesus is saying, like, not yet. Here's how it's actually going to happen. I'm going to show myself to some people and not to others. And Judas is, in effect, saying, I don't really like that plan. Like, it doesn't seem like a good idea. And Jesus doesn't totally answer his question, but he does readjust his priorities. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's. Who sent me. Notice what's happening here. Jesus is still singing the same song and doing the same dance. He just keeps saying, if you love me, if you love me, if you love me. They're concerned about all the contingencies. He's concerned about their loyalty, and he's saying, hey, just keep in mind, if you love me and you're trying to obey me, something good will come of it. I've already told you that if you love and obey me, I'm going to send the Spirit as a helper to come for you. And I've already told you that if you love and obey me, I will send the Spirit to convince you, to give you insight that I am with you. 
And I'm telling you here that if you love me and trust me, something special is happening. I am showing a unique love to you that I do not show to everyone else by coming to live within you. It says the Father and the Son will take up residence in the believer. This is the only place in the entire Bible where it says the Father and the Son take up residence in the believer. Everywhere else it's the Spirit. But we know because of the brackets that we saw earlier that the Father and the Son indwell us through the Spirit. He's saying that this is a special love. The word love is tricky, friends. I mean, even in our own English language, because like we could use it for so many things. I mean, wouldn't you agree that a love for ice cream is different than a love for your pet? If you love your pet. (laughs) Wouldn't you agree that a love for children in general is different than a love for your own child? There's no conflicts here, friends. John 3.16 is true. God loves the world. He sent His only begotten Son to it. But there is a special way in which He loves His own. And what is this special love? Why is it that God doesn't show Himself to everyone? Because there is a group of people that He loves in a special way. And that is those who love Him. And He loves them so much that He wants to move into them, to make, it says, make our home with Him. I love the word home. It's the same word, by the way. The Greek word here for home is the same word that is used in verse 2. Look at it. In my Father's house are many rooms. This is where you live. It's where you settle down. Just as God has a home in heaven, He also has decided to take up residence, to move into this world. Not this world generally, excuse me, but believers specifically. I don't know that you you catch the, the, um, the weight of the affection that's being expressed in this. So I need to pop culture this thing real quick. Please don't be offended if I reference the Beach Boys in a Sunday morning sermon. I was taking my kids yesterday to go get some groceries for a little breakfast tradition thing that we do. And um, I have the same playlist. It's like just all these songs from like the 50s and 60s and 70s. And uh, anyway, we came across the, uh, the Beach Boys song, Wouldn't It Be Nice? Now, I know like there's probably... Anybody born, you know, like after the age of 1990 or something, like, will not know who I'm talking about here. You can look it up, Beach Boys, Spotify, wouldn't it be nice? What blew me away as I was actually listening to the song, because most times I don't listen, you just kind of sing, but you're not thinking about the words, is it assumed a certain, like, morality that was still present, at least in the mid-60s. It was gone by 1968, but, like, it was still around in the early 60s in which the guys are singing about this desire that they want to have to, to move in with their, like, fiancé, girlfriend, and get married. Now, in our culture, they're like, who does that? We just move in whenever. But it's still, it's, it's interesting to see the historical morality, even as early as the, the mid-60s. We're like, wouldn't it be nice if we could be together? Wouldn't it be nice if we could go to bed together and wake up together? Wouldn't it be nice if we could, like, watch the sunset and wake up and see the sunrise? Like, wouldn't it be nice if we were married? Wouldn't it be nice if you moved in? 
It's just such an innocent song. It's not talking about anything immoral or pagan. It's just saying like it, that feeling that we, we felt, at least those of us who grew up with a Judeo-Christian context, where it's like, man, I can't wait to get married. I can't wait to move in. I can't wait to live with this person. That is an expression of love. And can you imagine this, friend? So it's like, try to get it through your thick skull and mind for a moment. God, the Father, and the Son so love their people that they want to move in. That's mind-blowing. Jesus was just with us. The Spirit enables the Son and the Father to live in us, to make a home in our hearts, and it is real. There's this great line in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, where Harry has been, what you think is dead, he's been killed by the, the enemy, uh, Voldemort. And he, he, he wakes up in this bright white room. It looks like a train station. And in it, he's assured by his friend, Albus Dumbledore, that all will be well, uh, that he would be able to, to bring uh, this battle to its epic conclusion. And as this, this particular circumstance is coming to an end, Harry asks, is this all real? Or is this just happening inside my head? The wise old professor replies, of course it's happening in your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean it's not real? Friends, there is a reality that transcends that which you can see and taste and touch and feel. There's a place that exists on the inside of you. It's called your soul. And you know what it does? It does things like perceive beauty. Put beauty in a test tube for me. It experiences love. Explain that with a mathematical algorithm. It senses dread. How do you quantify that? How do you put that on a chart? There's this immortal part of us. There's this soul. There's this inside. And what he's saying is, this is true of you now. He, he lives within you. He, he has come and taken residence up in you. Like He loves you that much that he is now making you aware of himself. He is, he's made himself at home in you. All your, your paltry attempts to love him and obey him, he reciprocates with his full loving presence. And it is real. And it is better. It's better. It's actually better. You know, if, it was, if Jesus was just here on the earth and there was no Holy Spirit, have you ever thought about this, friends? Uh, Jesus became human, which means he can only be in one place at one time. I mean, you thought the line at the DMV was long?
Could you imagine, like, how long would it take for you to get the physical audience with Jesus with 8 billion people being on the planet, 1 billion of whom claim to be Christians? But now, like right now, I'm not talking in heaven one day, I'm talking like right now, this moment, you have access to God, not like around the corner, or not in the church building, or not if you do the right ritual, but already living inside you right now? And by the way, I want to clarify something. This presence, the indwelling presence of God, I need to say this for everybody, please hear me well. It is a loving presence, not a looming presence. A loving presence, not a looming presence. You know the difference between the two. The looming presence is what I actually heard much as a child. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. (laughs) And be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little feet, where you go. And then this is what it said, (laughs) but it didn't feel this way. The Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little... And you're like, I don't know. It kind of sounds like he's not happy with what I would do with my hands or my eyes or my feet or, you know, whatever. Like, there's this intimidating presence like Orwell's 1984. Big Brother is watching. God's watching. God's watching. And I know how these things work. Like, I, I was a youth pastor for five years. I used to preach this all the time. You go out on that date and God's in the car with you. And when you watch that movie, God's listening. And what we do is we take the presence of God and turn it into this like intimidating, scary thing. Like he's just like security and he's just out, like out to get us. And what the truth is, is like, no, he's presenting it in terms of love. He's assuming that you love him and you know that He loves you, and He's with you, and He's helping you in your struggle, and in your sorrow, and in your weakness, and in your discouragement. Like, He's there all the time. It's not looming, it's loving. And you know what it does, friends, practically? It makes you want to keep obeying. I want him. I want him to be pleased in the things that I'm doing. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 6. When these guys are frequenting prostitutes, he says, hey, do you not remember that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He said just a few verses earlier, he's like, you used to be these things. You used to be sexually involved in all kinds of sin, but not anymore. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He's not beating them up. He's encouraging them. You're different now. What this text is doing for us is saying like, I am with you. I am in you. I love you. And that is a great help. If Jesus were physically present on the earth, he couldn't be with us all the time. He wouldn't be able to help us in those temptations in the car or with the movie or in our loneliness, those thoughts that only we ourselves have. But now the Holy Spirit is there, mediating the presence of the Father and the Son. This is good news. And by the way, this message, as idealistic as it sounds, is approved by God the Father, 
Look at verse 24. This is how it ends. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus is just reminding them, hey, I'm the mouthpiece of the Father. I've already proved that I'm the mouthpiece of the Father by all the signs and miracles that I've performed. You can take this to the bank. This is not just wishful thinking. The Father authorizes this message. Indeed, the Father and the Son live through the Spirit in those who love and obey the Lord Jesus. And so, friends, we've been caught up in the current of God's love. I I, I finish with this. But I love the old song that we sang today with a new tune. It's so old. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. The original version is this um, Eastern European, almost Russian-sounding ballad, this really heavy and deep. We sang it a little more sentimentally and personally, which is great. But the, the, the original is interesting because, like, when you're hearing all the tones behind it and the richness of it, like, it does, like, trick you into thinking, not trick you, but, like, it convinces you that you're like, whoa, this is big, this is huge, this is mighty. And, and with that kind of instrumentation, here's, here are the words, listen to them freshly in light of this perspective. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus vast, unmeasured, boundless, no limits, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of His love, leading onward, leading homeward to Thy glorious rest above. Isn't that awesome? That song's describing this. If you love Jesus, friends, you want to obey Him, that's evidence that you've been called up in the current of His love. Earlier, John has already told us, has already convinced us that, that He first drew us into Him. And then when we respond and reciprocate, guess what? It comes back around and He shows His love to us again. So it's this cycle, this current, if you will, that's going around and around. God is showing His love to us and the Son. We're responding in love and allegiance to Him. And then He's responding in love and allegiance to us. And then it goes back and forth and back and forth. We haven't been in a while, but the sun and fun place over here uh, off of Vanderbilt Beach, or Livingston, excuse me, like that, that is uh, my kid's favorite thing to do there is uh, the, the rapids thing whatever it's called. Somebody help me out with that one. Lazy river. But it's not that lazy. That's the crazy thing. It's not a lazy river. It is an active, aggressive river. (laughs) But the kids love it. They love getting caught up in the current, and it keeps just bringing them back to the same place over and over again. Isn't it a blast? To be caught up in the current of God's love. Jesus is saying, because I'm gone, because showcase A is no longer available, you've got showcase B. And what you have in that 
is the, the Father showing His love to you, you reciprocating that by showing your love to the Son, and then the Father showing His love to you by giving you insight through the Spirit, and also by indwelling you through the Spirit. You're just caught up in this beautiful thing until Jesus comes, and both things are true. Listen to this, friends. Here's how it ends at the very end. You get showcase A and B at the same time. The Spirit forever lives in His people, and then Jesus comes to physically rule and reign, and all is well for eternity and forevermore. That's great news. So I don't know about you, but as I think about it, I think I'd go with Showcase B for now. We've got what we need. We're caught up in the current of His love. If We love and obey Jesus. I have to say this, friends. I have to ask. This is true of those who love and obey Jesus. Not perfectly. John will make that clear. But is it the cry of your heart to say, yes, he is beautiful, he is good, he is Lord, and I want to obey him. I am trying to obey him. Or is it, are you the kind of person that's like, I don't really care what Jesus thinks. I want to live life my own way. Those are the options. Hearing and doing His Word or totally neglecting it and doing your own thing. If that's you, if you're just still living for your own way, you're not caught up in the current of His love yet. But you can be. (laughs) Before Jesus ever talks about loving and obeying Him, He talks in the earlier verses about believing in Him, trusting in Him. It begins there, friends. Don't worry about working up some kind of love or trying to like steal your spine for some kind of obedience. This thing begins simply by faith in Jesus alone. You trust in Him and that's how you step in the pool. And then the Spirit takes over from there. And by the way, if you're even tempted to trust in Him, if that seems appealing to you, thank God. Because that's evidence of the Spirit already beginning to draw you to Him. But would you step into that current even today? And if you have already, I just say to you, friends, enjoy. Enjoy these insights into your relationship with the Son on account of the Spirit. Enjoy. Enjoy the indwelling presence of the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And resolve, not out of guilt, but out of grace, to show your love and obedience to Him and what God has planned for you even this week. Let's pray, and then we'll sing a song of our affirmation and commitment to our Lord. Father, we rest in the good plans of Jesus to show His love through us in His absence through the Holy Spirit. I pray that that would encourage us this week, that it would enable further obedience, that these deep truths would bring us through distressing times. And for those who do not yet love Jesus, for those who have not yet trusted in Him, draw them into the current of your love even today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.